This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. All right, well, I hope all is going well with you. I, I you know, I, I admit this morning, I'm feeling a little off this morning, so you, you can just go ahead and lift me up in prayer that way. I, I'm just feeling a little off, and I don't know why. But before we get into the message, uh, just a couple of things. Uh, one, just, um, you know, we've been in the 40-day uh, spiritual adventure. Uh, we're about uh, halfway through it, and uh, it occurs to me I haven't said enough about We have these wonderful little cards out there in the lobby that say one another on them, and uh, it's just a chance for you to be purposeful about making a, a, a coffee or a lunch, or dinner, or something with somebody you don't already know really well. And so uh, just a way of getting to know people in the body better. And so I want to encourage you, if you would, grab one of those cards on the way out, look around, find somebody you don't know really well, and uh, invite them to, you know, get together and, and, and have a coffee or whatever, you know, you'd like to do, but take time to get to know one another uh, in the body. All right. Well, I don't know if you watch the news much. Um, I, I only tend to skim the headlines, and then I dive down where I think it might be appropriate that I need to read something. Uh, you know, I, I read a lot uh, as a whole, but uh, when it comes to news, I usually only dive down where I absolutely need to, right? Uh, because... Uh, nothing is probably uh, more discouraging than the news. But, you know, um, sadly, one of the things that's been going on here uh, in, in recent uh, years, really, but it, it seems like it's escalating, is that churches have been making the headlines in the last few years in a less than flattering way. Uh, if we're honest, it is uh, pretty disconcerting. And... Um, you know, uh, I, I've, I've heard all different opinions, some, you know, thinking maybe it's a consolidated attack on the church by the enemies of God. Others, uh, like myself, actually see it as God doing us a generous favor. Uh, I feel like uh, both in uh, COVID, the things we went through uh, in the church, and then in these recent, you know, releva- uh, revelations about pastoral abuse, ethics violations, financial misbehavior is really God's gift, uh, you know, it, where he is purifying his bride, you know, because he does not want her to come to him with clothes that are stained with sin. Uh, he wants to present himself a bride that is spotless and radiant. And so I'm not discouraged, even though I, I find it very sad, I, you know, I'll say that, and uh, you know, if I'm honest, I actually have a couple of friends who found themselves caught in those moments, uh, and that has saddened me greatly. But I still think that it is really for the best. You see, when I see things like this, I find it important to go back to the Bible and remind ourselves, number one, that God is in control, and then second, to review the history of God's people both in times of persecution because of righteousness' sake, being persecuted by the enemies of God, but also in the shaking of God's people, which is actually the more common 
reason for persecution among God's people is not the enemies from without, but the enemies from within, and the justice of God, how he will allow their enemies to have to you know, make reproach against them, lifting his hand of blessing on them, is a moment of purification, of, of bringing them to a place of repentance so that they would not be destroyed. And here's the thing is that when you're going through those things, and when you look at the comparison in the text when they were going through those things, uh, usually in the midst of that kind of pressure and discomfort, uh, the truth was is that the people of God had a hard time telling the difference, right? That they would be in the midst of that, and immediately the prophets would start to sing out about, you know, all these things and how the enemies need to be dealt with and everything. But somewhere in the midst of it, a prophet would speak truth to the situation as people as God's people cried out for deliverance and then would give the solution that was always very different from what those who just were trying to profit from the moment or who wanted to dismiss things or blame everyone else and so you know for when we when we come to places like that and we're in a hurry to ask God to judge our enemies, I think it's always important for us to make sure that our own heart and hands are clean. Amen or oh me? So, here we are in another installment of Unveiled Mysteries, our study in the Gospel of Mark, and this week we're in Mark 12. And uh, it's important, remember, that uh, we're dealing with a writings in the gospel of Mark that are not written in chronology but are written more thematically. It's very intentional uh, in the way that uh, all those things are put together to help us understand what is being taught by Jesus more importantly than the timeline of Jesus. And so a couple of weeks ago we saw a shift in the storyline, the second half of Mark dramatically leading us toward Jesus' death on the cross in chapter 15, and then to his resurrection in chapter 16. This chapter, chapter 12, is probably the most combative of anything that we've seen thus far in Mark. Uh, over the last two weeks, it's been increasing in conflict, but this week, thematically, our text is seemingly an all-out assault on the leaders of Israel as corrupt, but by Jesus. Like Jesus is turning the tables on the leaders of Israel, not only in their practices and their teachings, but specifically all their political maneuvering, specifically their unwillingness to, to defraud, or I should say their willingness to defraud the people of God for the sake of securing and protecting their own power, their position. And these earthly rulers you know, uh, have this view of that these people, these, earth, these earthly rulers, have the power to strip them of their position. And so they are, you know, giving in and yielding to earthly rulers in a way in which makes no sense if you and I think about it for just a moment. You know, when, the, when Jesus repeatedly says to us, you know, do not fear those who can kill the body, but he who can destroy you both soul and body. It is always important that we be more concerned with what God thinks than what anyone else thinks. 
Well, let's jump into chapter 12. We've got a lot to cover today. I'm going to be uh, use, reading from the English Standard Version. If you're using a phone or tablet, please set yours to silent for the sake of others around you. Whatever translation you have in your lap, please follow along. Let's take a look. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, and we read these words. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug up a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them the first fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another, and they killed him. And so it went with many others. Some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, another one, a beloved son. Finally, he sent them to them, saying... They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Will he not come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others? Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful? To pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and they said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, teaching, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There are seven brothers. The first one took a wife, and when he died and left no offspring, the second took her and died and left no offspring, and third the likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, also she died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For they, the seven had had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but be like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage of the, of the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is hero Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and all your strength, 
And the second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole-born offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared ask him more questions. And Jesus taught in the temple and he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declares, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he son? And great throng heard him gladly. In his teaching, he said, Beware the scribes who walk around in long robes and greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. He called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. So the chapter opens with an allegorical parable about the religious leaders of Israel, and known as the wicked tenants, followed by the debate about paying taxes, which was Jesus' second attack on the character of the religious leaders, and then followed by debates about scripture and tradition, first the resurrection, then the great commandment, followed by the whole point about the Messiah. This leads us to a direct warning to the crowd about the religious leaders, specifically in contrast to the widow who gave everything. And all of this is actually just queuing up for Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of the temple in Mark 13 as a judgment specifically on the religious leaders who would use the temple to codify their power in contrast with the Son of Man who is now the true temple and whose primary concern is the care of God's people. You know, throughout the First Testament, there is a lot of imagery of Israel or of Judah as the vineyard of the Lord. Uh, actually, in fact, uh, the vineyard movement of which we are a part draws its name specifically from passages in Isaiah about God protecting his vineyard from those who would destroy its fruit. And so I might say, well, let that continue to be our prayer even today, right? Pray that the Lord would protect our fruit from both from with enemies within and without so that no one would destroy it. Now, throughout the use of that imagery in the text was the warning specifically to the caretakers of the vineyard, especially as you look at the passages in Isaiah. Uh, and, and so as Jesus is drawing upon that, uh, what he's really saying is you know, that they weren't any different than the previous caretakers who had failed to take care of either Israel or Judah. 
Uh, in fact, one of the things that we know from uh, religious tradition, sometimes referred to as the halakha, uh, you can also think about the, some of the written things from that, the Mishnah and the Talmud uh, that were written uh, uh, later, uh, after the life of Jesus, but still kind of bringing about this whole codification uh, of these traditions, uh, was simply that they wanted to do differently than all the previous generations had done. And so in that tradition, the idea of building the fence around the law, uh, I, literally I'm quoting from the Mishnah there where it talks about the importance of building a fence around the law and the idea being simply that if we build a fence around the law, we can't break the law. So if it says, you know, that you shouldn't do the, you know, this, well, we'll get back up about 10 steps and you can't even do this. So that way you'll never get there is the idea. You know, if there's a tripwire, so you can't get there. You can't get to the place to violate it. Uh, and so uh, oftentimes in churches, we kind of do some of the same thing. You know, like we will uh, uh, do things like that and end up unintentionally codifying our tradition over the Word of God. Uh, you know, like one of the things I, I think of is just kind of uh, a common thing in uh, popular uh, church churchianity today. You know, we make up rules like, you know, about, uh, uh, you know, measuring uh, maybe a girl's dress by a dollar bill from the knee or something uh, like that. I remember uh, hearing that rule. Uh, uh, I actually, where I went to school and Bible college, uh, they would literally, they would take a dollar bill and measure from the middle of her knee to the top of the skirt. And if it didn't touch, like she had to go home and change. She couldn't be in school that day. Or, uh, you know, things about playing cards. And so we're afraid of gambling. And so we make rules against playing cards. Uh, uh, kind of silly. Uh, you know, uh, I was when I remember in Bible college, we weren't uh, we couldn't have dances because, you know, there was this fear that if you held a girl too tightly that, you know, it would, you know, and so we would say things like, well, you know, sex leads to dancing. Because they preached a whole lot about not dancing, but nobody ever said anything about not having sex, you know, uh, uh, so we just figured that, you know, sex leads to dancing. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, so there's, you know, sometimes we codify things in a way and we make up rules and then they become the most important thing rather than the important thing. And so in this whole thing and then building their fence around the law, they thought they were going to be different than all the leaders who had gone before them. But then what Jesus tells us repeatedly is that part of this building the fence around the law was actually heaping on people additional burden. Uh, uh, the, this, these, and that the, the codification of their traditions had turned into a heavier weight than the law on the people. And, and so in this concerted effort to keep Judah from going astray, they were actually pushing the people back to a whole new kind of captivity. Uh, not one that where they would go into exile like they did in Babylon, but instead living in their own land as a, a people who were just bound up, who were unable uh, to walk with God, unable to enjoy the presence of God. And ultimately, you know, they found themselves in many ways exiles and strangers in their own land as Rome 
consolidated its power. Rome was, you know, standing over them and weighing heavy on them. And they kept saying to the people, look, if you guys would just behave better, Rome would go away. The Messiah would come. If you would just behave better, if you would just keep the traditions and not break the law, you know, that ultimately God would deliver us. But it's your fault. You, you're you're just, uh, just such horrible people. In fact, uh, we see that even uh, as uh, Jesus, uh, you know, is preaching in the marketplace and they send guards to go arrest him and the guards come back without him and they go where where is he we set you to arrest him and they said wow we've never heard anyone speak like that i mean that was powerful and then you listen to the contempt of the high priest yeah, do you see any of us following after that? No, it's because all of you people, you common people, are stupid and under a curse. None of us follow that guy. We're better than all of you. You see, the problem was is that's the exact same attitude that got them into exile in the first place. You see, as you go back through and you read about the people going astray, the thing that becomes clear is that there's just been so many generations of bad leadership and of pursuing other things and, and all that, that the people are just caught up in it. So that even when there is a single good king that begins to elevate things for a period of time, just the weight of the culture and the society just continues and and all during the time they're making right decisions, we find even that other leaders are fighting them on it. it you know, the reality is, is that one good king can't make it all up for everybody. One good leader, political or otherwise, can't fix everything. Are you aware of that? Do you, do you live in that world? If you don't, you need to. You, you need to come to grips with that world. Because you do live in it. And so, here we are in this parable in which, you know, uh, their solution, you know, is rebuke and deride the common Jew, assuming the failure of Judah was their fault, completely ignoring what the Scriptures had taught, that the real issue was on the leadership. In fact, when they carried them off into exile, I mean, the reason that Daniel is off in exile and right and is part of the royal family is because royalty got the blame for everything. Even the outsiders knew that. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And they took one look and said, there's a problem here. And so they carried them off into exile so they could not revive the people and left the common man back home for the most part. I think it's an important and constant reminder to those of us in church leadership even today. I, I don't just mean pastors, I, but listen, anyone who leads, elders, deacons, whatever ministry you might be leading, that we never think that if we could just whip everybody else into shape, that everything would be all right. There should be no pleasure in beating the sheep. And my first thought is always, 
what can and should I and other leaders be doing to lead better? Want a better result? Do a better job of leading. Here's what doesn't work. Surveying the crowd, checking the political winds for direction, that is exactly what got them in trouble in the first place. And they were doing it again. See, they were missing the point. They were building fences around the law to control everyone else, but they weren't owning their part in the, the problem. And so they're, they're missing the point entirely. When Jesus was telling the leaders that the, that the failure was their part, like they didn't want to hear anything he had to say to them. Instead, what he's telling them is, listen, not only were the failures of Israel and Judah based on the past leaders, but even the very need for a Messiah was not to deliver them from outside forces, Babylon, Rome, etc., but to deliver them from inside forces. You know, that's one of the things that's always confusing, right? Is because according to tradition, they thought the problem was Rome. And if Messiah would come, he would deliver them from Rome. They thought the problem was Babylon. If, if, a Messiah, if Messiah would just come, he would deliver us from Babylon. But the prophet Isaiah says to them again and again, listen, the real problem is that your leaders have led you astray and you followed after them. And so he's calling upon them to, one, step back from the leaders. And two, he's calling the leaders to account and takes them into captivity. There's this whole thing of it's where they're like reevaluating, and yet what we find is in this moment, the leaders are heaping the same kind of problems on them that previous generations did. And he reminds them, you know, you know the common people didn't kill the prophets, right? I mean, as you read through the Old Testament, it's, it's, it's kings who kill prophets. It's, it's, it's priests who kill prophets. It's sometimes the kings killing the priests and the prophets, uh, uh, but uh, you don't have like the priest raising up and throw, overthrow, you know, overthrowing the king or things like that. Uh, uh, it's, it's usually it's a top-down kind of thing. And so there's this problem that it is is deeply embedded in the whole message. And so he's saying, listen, the, that as Messiah, what I want to point out to you is that uh, a significant to this problem is your leadership. I want you to take and examine who these people really are, who it is that you're following hard after. Now, Jesus' clear and unmistakable message to the crowd is that God was going to replace the caretakers with new leaders. It was not a judgment on Israel. I, I've heard people try to say that, that, well, see, that was the end of the, you know, of the uh, Jewish, and then the, uh, ushering in the church era, and that you know, God was wiping out Israel. That is not what the text is teaching at all. It is a clear message against leadership and he has called all of Israel the vineyard and says, I will give them to someone else who will take care of them since you, leaders, are not doing the job. And then 
The message follows clearly, as it does all through that last half of Mark. We just keep seeing it week after week after week, that Jesus is going to be murdered by whom? The religious leaders. Shock. Awe. Like, it's the witness of the entire Bible, right? I mean, that's what the story is about. He's saying, look, I have this vineyard, and I love it, and it's fruitful. And from within, there are people that are supposed to be taking care of the vineyard, and they're not doing that. They're abusing it. They're stealing from it. And he's talking continually about how these Pharisees, behold, he did not say, you know, uh, you know gee, you know, the lilies of the field are dressed better than the Pharisees. That's not what he said. The reason they want to kill him is because he says, behold the Pharisees, how they steal, how they are taking advantage of you. I mean, that's why they want to kill him. And so as he says this, he goes, listen, these guys are going to kill me too because I'm the son. And they think that if they kill me, it will save their position, their place of power. And so this is then followed by three challenges from religious leaders in a vain attempt to win back the crowd. First attempt, paying taxes to Caesar, something every common Jew hated and all of you do still today. The hope was that they would get him Either A, to concede to their traditions of inter, their interpretation of expediency. The interpretation of expediency was that, that they should go ahead and pay these things, and so they introduced traditions about what coin you paid with. So the coin that had the image of Caesar, can I go ahead and get that coin on up on the screen, if you would, for just a moment? This is just one of many coins you can see here the, the, the coin with Caesar's name on it, uh, uh, and there were multiple different coins uh, from that time period, but just kind of give you an idea. Uh, some of them on one side of the coin uh, would make the declaration, the Son of God, others the supreme leader, uh, the emperor, uh, you know, supreme, and things like that. Uh, but uh, so they, they just simply, he, you know, gets hold of this coin, and they had made these rules, like, okay, we're going to pay this coin here into the temple tax because it doesn't have the image of Caesar. But they were still using the image of Caesar for all other purposes, right? Uh, and what was forbidden was for them to make images and to worship things. Uh, that was the idolatry of it all. But they had this whole doctrine of how they uh, worked it through and justified putting you know, these things uh, and allowing these things to, to continue in their land. And so they thought, well... One of two things will happen here. A, he will concede to what we've already been telling the people. And then that will gut him of his power. Or two, or two, he will speak against paying taxes to Caesar and then will sick Caesar on him. One way or another, we get our power back, and he loses. The problem is, is that 
Jesus is no dummy, number one. And number two, he saw right through what they were doing. And so he speaks a rebuke to them that had nothing to do with paying taxes. Now, I know it's popular tradition to say that Jesus was advocating, you know, when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and unto God what is God's, that he was explaining that why we have separation of church and state. No. That is not, this text is not for that. As much as I love the American way of life, no, he was not advocating for three houses and, you know, and all, no. While it is popular to teach that Jesus was advocating paying taxes to men and tithes to God, first and foremost, that was what the scribes taught. So he's contradicting that. Let me say that in clear terms. And what Jesus says leaves them speechless. So I know he wasn't agreeing with them. Moreover, it's the use of that coin, the image of Caesar on it, because he asked them, whose name and whose title? See, that's what makes it so provocative. He lifts up that coin. Whose name and whose title? It's a penetrating question. The obvious response, the emperor. And one of his grand titles, I don't know which exact print of the coin it was, what issue it was. Like I said, it could have said simply Caesar or supreme ruler, son of God, any one of those, would simply poke in the eye of the religious leaders for selling out the people. Specifically, by putting him in the position to publicly get him killed or at least discredited so that they could retain their position in power. It's an indictment, what he says, of their leadership. It's an indictment of how they teach. It's not a comment on the law. It's a comment on them. Actually, Jesus said nothing about what the law teaches on paying taxes. Read it again. He only accuses the leaders of worshiping money and power as represented by Caesar's image and coin. It is a direct accusation. This is your God. That's who you really worship. Because even though you make all your little rules to separate things, the truth is, is that that's what you're after. Even right now in this very moment, is you put me in this position. See, you don't care about what's true. You don't care about what's right and just. You just want to win. Again, when the Sadducees go after Jesus about the resurrection, again, the concern's not for truth. It's not for the word of God or even for the resurrection. This battle was actually not about interpretation. Although it did reflect the Sadducees' rejection of the resurrection, that was primarily philosophical. They thought they were just going to outsmart him. The primary accusation of Jesus against them was not about the law. 
their position was not from the law, but one of logic. Jesus' actual point was what? You don't know God or the Scriptures. If you had bothered to look, you would know how ridiculous your question is. I'm paraphrasing. This is the Hal Hester paraphrase. If you didn't know that, it's not, yeah. If you just bothered to look at the law, if you bothered to look at the Scriptures, you'd know what a dumb question that is. He doesn't say that. He's always nicer than me. Well, not always. Sometimes he says some pretty hard stuff. Third attempt. This guy at least has a little integrity. It's all about the greatest commandment. He's impressed by what he sees. It's a scribe, a lawyer. There's another way of saying it, depending on your translation. Again, it's not about the law, actually. It's actually a trap that centers around popular debate in interpretive circles. Again, you know, I, I know I've been saying this a lot lately, but I, I just, point of reference for people, if you've been watching The Chosen, right, and then they're having the debates about Hillel's school versus the other schools, and, and whose school are you following, and, and, and political maneuvering, right, and, and the one, you know, Pharisee that has been concerned with truth, he's getting very frustrated because he's realizing that no one's actually concerned about truth. They're only actually concerned about their political position and their power, and he's beginning to have second thoughts, right? And the last, I think, episode, it has him going up the mountain to pray with Jesus because he's beginning to realize that he hasn't been on the side of truth. He thought he was. And then he's realized that the religious leaders that what they're really all about is their position, their power, their wealth, themselves. But it's not really about the people. The people are just the pawns in the middle of it. One of the debates takes centerpiece in the Mishnah is knowing what is the most important law? You think to yourself, well, gosh, I mean, he's quoting right out of Deuteronomy, right? I mean, like, it ought to be like a slam dunk. That is the point. This ought to be a slam dunk if we were concerned about what the law says. It's not a slam dunk. Why? Because we've been arguing schools of theology and debating and putting things, pitting them against one another. You ever, by chance, ever like listen to Christians debate things? You know, Calvinism versus Arminianism, for instance. And you quickly realize it's about whose camp you're in rather than being on Jesus' side? Mm. Sound familiar to anyone? And Jesus quotes the Shema. The Shema from Deuteronomy there is the basic statement of faith of every Jew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. 
Those opening words, that, that confession is something that would have been said every day. Like, how do you not know what the greatest law is? And so Jesus just responds to him, not out of tradition, not out of philosophy, not out of schools of thought. He just like actually does this crazy thing and goes back to the Word of God. I'm just like, wow! Why should that be so mind-blowing? Can I point out to you in the Old Testament that there are multiple times in which the people so lose sight of the Word of God that when the Word of God is discovered, that they bring it out and the people assemble and they stand all day and all night reading the first five books of the Bible why people weep and tear their clothes because they realize they don't even know what God's Word says anymore and they're the people of God. You know, I, I know it's not particularly popular, but you know it is why we read like a chapter every week. Because I just like woke up one day and realized that I just hadn't heard anybody read an entire chapter of the Bible in church in decades. Decades. Like when I was in Bible college 30 years ago. Have you been to church lately? Where they don't read the Bible? Like, or they read a verse and then they go do and talk about whatever they want to? Had that experience recently? I've, I have. I, I, just, I just found it in, intriguing how many people that were just truly out in the world and like wanted to study the Bible. And they said, you know, I'm just wondering, when is it in the church that we actually study, they study the Bible? I just was curious. I came here to find out what the Bible says, and I'll, I've never heard anybody talk about the Bible. It ought to be a wake-up call for us. Again, their position is not from the law. And so Jesus reduces the philosophical and tradi traditional arguments to rubble when he just goes to the law, quotes the Shema, and, and everyone is blown away. Wow! Never did someone speak like, are you serious right now? Yes. But see, once again, the law was really not in play. The debates were not about the law. They were not rooted in Scripture. They were just talking about but not actually discussing what the law said. Can I point out this? That can be captivating not only in terms of like pastors preaching and teaching, but it can like also captivate your life group. It can captivate your discussions about what's good and right and just in the world. And we can get so caught up in all of our thoughts on what the Bible says that we might really just completely miss what the Bible actually says. This is when Jesus turns all the debates on their head and instead of being questioned by those who were maneuvering politically and pitting schools of interpretation against one another, he just cuts against the grain of it all and he dives right into the subject of Messiah because everyone wanted a Messiah. Everyone wants deliverance. Everyone wants things to be put right. Right? I mean, we're, we'd like it right now. 
And if you watch the, la- the political debate over the last, you know, 15 years, you know everyone's looking for a Messiah and they've tried to find it in their president. Everyone wanted Messiah. Everyone wanted Messiah that would deliver them from occupation but keep their beliefs intact to agree with them. That's usually how we measure Messiahs. Do they agree with me? Jesus challenges them and asks them, whose son is the Messiah? Is he David's son? And if he's David's son, why then does David call him Lord? Now, Septuagint slide, please. You've heard me reference the Septuagint a lot over the years, especially in the last couple and throughout the study. The Septuagint, meaning 70, or sometimes written out in Roman Roman numerals, LXX, is the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible translated in the 3rd century B.C. This was the version most often quoted in the New Testament. Jesus quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, here in Mark, although... He wouldn't have said Psalm 110, verse 1, because it hadn't been broken up like that yet. He quotes it, and just like most of the New Testament, he is quoting right there, or at least Mark was quoting from the Septuagint. And so every good Jew in that day knew the difference. And they knew that the word Lord in that psalm was the kind of politically correct way of saying Yahweh out loud. If you go back to this in the Hebrew, it says that why does he call him Yahweh? He wasn't asking how can David call him a king or the boss or the head cheese or something like that. He was asking why does David refer to the son of David, the Messiah, as Yahweh? Like, and they're like, ah. Uh, uh, don't know. And in doing so, he just shuts down all the speculation about Messiah is just bankrupt tradition, not based on the Bible. See, he's telling the crowd once again, stop listening to all their traditions. Stop listening to all of these. These people are leading you astray. I know they're making you fearful. You're worried about where all of this is going, but I'm telling you, this is the way. Watch then how Mark closes out the section. He accuses the scribes of being thieves, glory seekers, and power hungry, specifically devouring the house of widows. And then gives us the picture of the widow putting in her two mites. All that she has. Making very clear contrast between Israel's leaders and the real people of God. The widow. Whose house is devoured by these money-grubbing politician types. And then it leads us into the discourse on the Mount of Olives about the temple and its destruction, which will happen not only literally, but 
there is this whole thing just making the point about God moving the change of the seat of power from the religious leaders to the presence of the Holy Spirit, moving the power and the message of the kingdom from the hands of the unfaithful few to the entire community of faith filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the light of the gospel so that you and I now, each one of us, we have the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. No longer is the division between the clergy and the laity, but instead we all have the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We all have the ability to access the presence of God and then collectively together, like there's this responsibility that we have to one another, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, of the sense of commonality and of communion that exists between us, not only in the breaking of the bread, but the way that we do life together. You see, there's this expectation that instead of waiting for Moses to go up the mountain and bring back the manna, bring back the word of the Lord or whatever else, that all of us would be in that place by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, that you can delve right into the same word of God and find the fountain that flows deep within you, that you can know and be in relationship with God. And it's not all dependent on the hands of a, fa of a faithful few or an unfaithful few. But you have the same access. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God dwells in you and with you. And when you want to push it back and re start rebuilding temples and stuff, I just want to remind you before you let your eschatology run away with the good thinking and the good theology, like remember, there's a reason that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. There's a reason that Jesus is pushing this out to you and he wants you to come to him, not go to bricks and mortar, not go to people with titles and big hats. He's calling you into relationship with Him to live and to dwell with Him and to hear His voice for yourself. And when you resort to those other things, you're saying, you know, Moses, we'd just rather you go up to the mountaintop. We're afraid of God. And we don't want to know Him. And I can't think of a sadder message. You are the light of the Holy Spirit to the world. Why is it so surprising that these issues continue to be the primary problem of the community of faith today? On one hand, we have religious leaders opting for tradition and schools of thought over the Word of God and passing off their traditions as the Word of God. Still a problem today. The second is the problem of power in the church and pandering to politics and money and our hope being based on who is in office. It is not an attractive look on the church. And then there's the problem of Christians just preferring leaders over to actually knowing for themselves. when we are called to be the dispersed kingdom of God, the royal priesthood of believers, and to take the gospel to the nations. But instead we turn our churches into temples. We consolidate our power through religious institutions. And we're worried about who's king, just like everyone else.
on what God wants is to be our shepherd and our true king, our God. He wants to use all of us, not just pastors, not just leaders, but all of us. And so that's my invitation this morning to you. If you're here and you feel like God is calling you to step up, then I want to ask you to do that this morning. Would you just physically step up? Let's stand together. So if you feel like the Lord's saying to you, step up, I just want to invite you to do that. You can step up by just coming up here right now. You can just come on up to the front. I'm not talking about that you say that I've got a call to leadership. I'm saying, do you feel it's important for you to step up? Well, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. And we're grateful that he came to establish a truly new way. That the way of the kingdom was not about lording over people. That the way of the kingdom uh, is not a message about uh, uh, whooping up on our enemies. But it was one of uh, recognizing that the real enemy is sin and death and its rule and reign over us, the crushing powers of darkness, uh, working in the hearts and the lives of people, leaving them in places where they don't know your voice, they don't know the freedom that comes in being in relationship with you, uh, don't know the, the hope of eternal life that is spoken uh, in the midst of coming to you in the here and now, not just in the sweet by and by, not just in the sweet someday that uh, when your kingdom comes in all of its fullness, but that you have called us as a people to be a people who were released to do your good will in the earth. We are a people who've been uh, given authority and permission by the power of the Holy Spirit to cast down demons, to raise our hands in prayer and admonition and healing and, and to be a people, advocates for the sake of hope and liberty for our neighbors, for our friends, our family, even our earthly enemies. Lord God, would you stir us up today with a sense of expectation that you are moving in us and among us, even now, that it's always been your heart's desire that we would be in this deep abiding relationship with you, 
that it was never your intention uh, to put uh, things and people in the way as obstacles. And so, Lord, we just, we're, we're pressing into you now. Lord, even for some who didn't step forward in this moment but wanted to, I, I pray that this would be this moment uh, in, in their heart and uh, even though they didn't do it physically, would this be a moment you would write on their hearts of invitation to step up, to walk out what it is that you want to do in their heart and life, to set them free with the power of the gospel and to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to their family, to their friends, to their neighbors, and whomever else you would put in their path. We just invite you, Lord, have your way among us now. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, can I have prayer team members go ahead and... Well, I think that's the majority of people up front right now getting prayer, so... And if you have need of anything else this morning, um, you know, anything else that God might be stirring in you, let me invite you to come get some prayer, and otherwise, uh, I hope to see you next week. God bless. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.